Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. If you have a Bible, you can find your way to Acts uh, chapter 6, otherwise the words will um, be on the screen. We're studying the book of Acts. It's our family story. Um, If you don't know your family story, you're impoverished, right? This week I was in um, New Jersey. Um, Not many people admit that they're from New Jersey. Um, But uh, my family, um, my mother was from Elizabeth, my father was from Patterson. Um, the, um, uh, and so this week I was there, I was with one of my cousins, grew up in Union, and he, um, as we drove around, he would say, oh, that's where your mother went to primary school. Uh, oh, you know that building over there? Your grandfather built that uh, building. Uh, and then we go by somewhere else, and he said, that's where your dad and mom, you know, they, they, that's where they live when they got married. Well, I don't know any of this. I'm like everyone else in Florida, right? Um, our family's from up north. They moved down here before I was born to South Florida. I'm cut off from, uh, from my roots in New Jersey. We had six kids in our family. You think we made vacations in a station wagon driving to New Jersey? Um, that didn't happen. And I'm impoverished by this. Matter of fact, the cousin said, next time you come up here, I'll take you on a tour of your family history. Um, Well, that's what we're doing in the book of Acts, right? We're on a tour of our family history. We're asking this question, how in the world does the church go from 100 people following an executed, shamed, uh, shamefully executed Messiah to becoming the dominant faith in the entire world and every tribe, tongue, and nation, the only faith ever that's crossed every cultural barrier into every part of the earth. How in the world did that happen? And we're gonna meet two main players uh, in that. One is Stephen, somebody in our family history that enters the story and exits the story virtually in one chapter in the Bible. That's it. And yet Stephen changed the whole world. Because of the other person we're going to meet just briefly, and his name is Saul. He's in this story too. Um, Ready? So stand if you're able and willing, and let me read. um. Now, I got to tell you that we're going to read about um, the arrest of Stephen and the execution of Stephen, but in between that, Stephen gives a defense. That defense is about 60 verses long in the Bible. And uh, if I were to read all of that here, some of you would feel like you were being persecuted. Um, so I would love for you to read it. It's a lengthy reading of the Bible. It's rich. I'm going to explain it to you. You could go home this afternoon, have a quiet uh, moment um, before the Bucks game. Uh, you can um, uh, give your attention to it because it is uh, Stephen's defense is very rich. We're going to start at the seventh um, verse of, the, of chapter six of the book of Acts, where it says, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. 
Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and they disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, So are these things so? And Stephen then begins his response. We'll pick it up with the conclusion at verse 51 of chapter seven, when Stephen says to them, basically in conclusion, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your father did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the law as delivered by angels, but you did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. Funny people don't seem to like to be called stiff-necked people. They were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Think of how gruesome that is. Think of being stoned to death, being crushed little by little. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Amen. This is the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated, please. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Help us to see heaven opened and the Son of Man interceding for us before the Father. Hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Jesus, our advocate. Amen. So you guys know what going viral means, right? Going viral. Some image, some YouTube, you know, scene. Um, starts to spread all around by word of mouth and then with social media, right, it just goes. And it doesn't have to happen in New York City. Like news, if it doesn't happen in Washington or New York City, it's pretty hard to get on the news. 
but something viral could have happened in you know Pocatello, Idaho, right, or, or um, wherever Pocatello is, and um, and it could just go um, viral. Um, I'm going to tell you later uh, something that that a young girl she calls herself Nightbird. She was on. Um, America has talent or some show like that. Simon Cowell's one of the judges. And uh, recently she appeared on the show and, and as they questioned her, they, she revealed that um, about two years earlier she had been given three months to live with terminal cancer. And here she was still standing there. She doesn't look healthy. She's as thin as a wisp. And, um, and, and when she sang... Um, Simon Cowell himself wept um, in, uh, in rece- it went viral, this went viral every um, where. Last, last week, Tom Brady, you know who Tom Brady is, Tom Brady? You know, for about 18, 20 years in the NFL, he was the devil. And it, unless you were from Boston, he was the devil, but then he was converted two years ago and he came to <laughs> Tampa. And so last week, there was a little boy in the stands that had a little sign that said, you know, um, just a little fella, had a sign that said, Tom Brady, um, help me recover from brain cancer. And Brady went up to him after the game and gave him his um, gloves and the little boy was weeping. And that, that went, what? Viral. Yeah, everybody in this room knows something that went viral in 2020. An actual virus, right? Um, went viral. So here's the question. How did the church, what caused the church to go viral? The church was just a small sect, um, they executed the, the leader of this movement in a shameful public display. I mean, the entire Roman government, the entire Jewish population is opposed to this very little group, maybe only a hundred followers of Jesus when he dies. And then it takes off and it spreads all over the world rapidly. What happened? Well, somebody got killed. That's what happened. Somebody got killed. And that's what we're going to realizes that something he said and what he experienced and something he saw is what caused the church to go viral. You ready? Got your sermon outline? Let's go. First of all, let's talk about what he said. What did Stephen, the first Christian to be killed, the first follower of Jesus to be executed? This is our family story, isn't it? This is the first one of our brothers and sisters. In the world today, there will be people killed because they follow Jesus. In the world for the last 2,000 years, there are people being killed every day for following Jesus. This is the first. And something happened that caused the church to explode. What Stephen said, what he experienced, what he saw, and one more thing, it's one of the people who was there. It changed the whole world. Ready? So here's the first thing. What were his words? What were Stephen's um, words? Who was Stephen? Well, Stephen was not an apostle. Remember the persecution of the, they killed Jesus, and then they, they start to really harass, you know, Peter and James and John, and right there getting harassed and arrested and beaten and threatened, as we've already seen in the book of Acts. But they're all apostles. It's Jesus and it's his 12, right? But now there's Stephen. Stephen's not one of the apostles. Stephen is one of the seven chosen to be the first deacons of the church. The church is bringing in, people are sharing their material possessions and they're distributing it to the widows and the poor of the church and the deacons are selected and Stephen is one of them. But he's not just a kind and charitable man. 
The Bible says that filled with the Holy Spirit, grace and power, that Stephen had a dynamic ministry. More and more people were becoming followers in Christ. In fact, it says that the Jewish priests were converting to become followers of Jesus. Now, how popular do you think that was in the Jewish religious leadership? When their own priests are switching over and becoming followers of Jesus. So Jesus clearly had to be, uh, Stephen had to be stopped. And so they began to confront Stephen when he was speaking. The problem was is that Stephen would whip them, right, in debate, right? He was, um, uh, he was clever and forceful and uh, they were losing the argument. So that they began to smear him, right? We see that in politics all the time, right? If you can't win the argument, then uh, smear the character of, uh, of the other. Uh, so that's what they begin uh, to do. And that didn't seem to be effective. So finally they, you know, uh, if slander will work, just use raw power. And they grab um, Stephen and they arrest him and they bring him before the Sanhedrin. This is essentially the same body who executed, who sentenced Jesus to death, right? The same tribunal and Stephen's brought there. And here's the charge. Remember what the charge was? This man never ceases to speak words against the temple and against the law. Now, for a Jew, these are fighting words, right? Because the temple is the dwelling place of God. It's the house of God. If you want to meet God, you got to go to the temple. That's where the sacrifices take place in the temple. God is in the holy place. Not only that, the temple's only one place on earth, and it's in Israel, and it's in Jerusalem. That means the Jews are the most what? They're the most favored. They're the most important. They're the people on the earth that God loves the most, and that God lives in their country with them, in the midst of them. That means they're God's favorites. And so for anybody to speak against the temple was to take on the most sacred thing of all. But not only that, he was speaking against the law. I mean, this is the truth of God. This is the, this is the heart of God. This is the teaching of God, um, the law. So that's the charge against Stephen. So what happens? He gets dragged in front of them, and the high priest uh, in charge says, all right, you have the floor, right? Um, let's hear, are these things true? Are the charges against you true? And Stephen launches his defense, which we didn't read. You're going to read on your own, but, um, but here's his defense. As to the charge of the temple, you know what Stephen says? The temple is not where God dwells. God um, um, does not dwell in any um, building made with human hands. And Stephen does something very cagey, you know. He argues not with, uh, not with the teaching of Jesus. Stephen never mentions Jesus in his entire defense except for at the very end and it's sort of an oblique um, reference um, because they don't believe uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. So to argue with the words of Jesus aren't going to have any effect. Stephen argues with their holy scriptures. He argues with the Old Testament. It's just a word to us, right? If you're talking to an atheist, if you're talking to an unbeliever and you whip out the Bible and say the Bible says, what do they immediately say? I don't believe the Bible. The Bible's not a source of authority to me. So one of the great things you can do is point out all the atheists through history uh, that, that uh, were converted, uh, like C.S. Lewis uh, and others. Um, and you can even use the words of atheists today who say, you know what, it's only the belief in God 
that gives us any transcendent truth in the world. Without it, you really have no basis for any human rights. You can't say slavery is wrong if there is no God. So you can actually use the very words of atheists um, to debunk atheism. Got it? So that's what he does, uh, Stephen. So he says, you know, the God of Israel is present everywhere. He met Abraham where? In a pagan idol-worshiping country. God was there and met Abraham, the father of the faith. Where did he meet Joseph? But in Egypt. Where did he meet uh, Moses? But in the wilderness of Midian. Pagan country after pagan country after pagan country, God was there, right? So um, then Stephen says about this charge of... um, of um, uh, not, not respecting the law. No, my respect to the law is great. The law is holy and good at every turn. But here's the truth, is you've never obeyed the law. You claim to have this great respect for the law of God, but you've never, ever obeyed God's law. Stephen says to them, you know, when Moses got the law of God, you grumbled and complained. We want to go back to Egypt, you said. When Aaron, uh, uh, Moses brought the law to Aaron on Mount Sinai, and what did he find? He found you worshiping a golden calf. You'd made an image. At every point, you've disrespected um, the law. God sent you messenger after messenger through all the uh, years to, to turn back to the law of God. And you killed a great number of them. You rejected them all. Do you know, you ever try to read through the Bible? You know, Genesis, Exodus, you're cruising, right? And, and, and you might even make it through Numbers. Um, and you keep going and you get to the Psalms and Proverbs. That's pretty cool. Song of Solomon. That's in the Bible. And you keep um, going and then suddenly you come to, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea, you know, Joel and Amos and Obadiah and Jonah and Micah and all those people you never heard of in those little books that the preachers never preach on. Now, who are those people? They were God's covenant lawyers. You see, God had a covenant with the people. They'd made an agreement. It was a bound in blood. And uh, what happens when you have a contract with someone, right? When you contract with someone to build their house and they don't show up to build it, what do you have to do? You have to go hire a lawyer. And the lawyer goes to them and says, you know, there's a penalty clause in the, in the contract. If you don't abide by the contract, then we're going to enforce the penalty, right? So guess what? God would send his representatives, his messengers, prophets, over and over and over. And what does um, Stephen say? You rejected them all. You even killed some of them. In fact, every savior he sent to you, you know, uh, God says, I sent you Joseph. You sold him. Uh, Moses, you chased out into the wilderness. Um, David spent his uh, almost, uh, you know, I mean, Saul tried to kill David with a spear, tried to pin him to the wall. Then David's own sons rebel against him. Um, and then you come to verse the very end, and Stephen completely drops the hammer when he says, and when the Messiah came, you betrayed him and you murdered him. You see, what he's essentially saying, don't sit here and tell me about your great respect for God and your great respect for his law. You've been the greatest enemies of God. Now, look at what he says in verse 51. Um, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart. They're the proud people. They're, they're the sign of circumcision. Born on the male body is proof that they're the ones who belong to God. And what does Stephen says? You're uncircumcised. Yeah, physically you're circumcised. But your hearts are hard, right? Um, 
You don't hear God. You resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced the the coming of the righteous one who you've now betrayed and murders. You who received the law as delivered by angels, you've never kept it. Isn't any wonder they killed them, right? Um, So, you know, what do they need? Stephen says, um, you know, you were given the law, but you haven't kept it. Uh, So, you know, um, you've practiced all the rituals religion, but, you know, if if you're counting on the law to make you right with God, you're in deep weeds, right? It's not, it doesn't sound like a winning strategy. Um, That's not going to work. You need something new. You need something uh, completely different. It's such a warning to us is you can be so religious, you can be so close to the truth and completely miss it. Do you know why a great deal of people uh, historically have gone to church in America? They've gone to church for the preacher to tell them that they're better than the people who don't go to church. To reassure them that they're right with God. And all those people out there are the uncircumcised, the unwashed, the dirty. But you're the good people. Um... And um, you can have all the rituals, religion, but your hearts can be filled with pride and, uh, and self-righteousness. That those people out there, they really need God, but we have him. He loves us. We're his favorite. We're going to heaven. We're the good. Um, Got to try something uh, um, different. What do they need? You know, a friend of mine's a pastor in um, California, and he tells of this Um, conversation. He said, I spent an hour today with a 70-year-old woman who's coming to our church. She's Buddhist. And and this is the woman's testimony. I'm vindictive, selfish, judgmental, and petty. I've tried to tell myself I'm a good person, but I know it's not true. Buddhism isn't really helping me make sense of all this, so I'm looking for something else. And that's why I love to be a pastor in Florida, because people move here. They leave their uh, established life. They, um, they leave their family, their culture, um, their job, and everything else. Do you know how many people that, you know, if I get married, that's going to fill my life. If I have um, children and a family, that'll fill my life. Career will fill my life. Financial success will fill my life. All whatever, respect in the community, whatever it is, there's something that will fill my life. And all of it, of course, the ultimate thing they're living for is retirement. Because then you get to come to Florida. And I'm going to have all this freedom and I'm going to be able to get my body in shape and I'm going to work out and I'm going to play golf and I'm going to make new friends and, and uh, live in the villages. And, um, y- you know, and then when they get here, what do they discover? Emptiness. Emptiness. It doesn't fill the hole. It doesn't satisfy. And now they look forward and say, what, what will? I mean, I'm just getting older every year. I don't think going to the doctor every third day is actually going to um, be the thing. This is the great opportunity to say there is something more. Um, and, and it's alluded to right here in, um, in, in, uh, in, in the words, which of the prophets did your father not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the, it's the one reference to Jesus, the righteous one. It's a very unusual reference to Jesus. He's the righteous one. In other words, 
You need somebody who can keep the law for you, the righteous one. Um, You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. He is the temple sacrifice, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. Remember their argument? You disrespect the temple. The righteous one is the fulfillment of the temple. The righteous one is the keeper of the law, right? You need the righteous one. You want to have a relationship with God? It's through Jesus, the temple. That's how you can have a relationship, a personal relationship, a life-changing relationship with God. That's the new thing. The righteous one, Stephen says, um, Listen, you know, what happens with the law? Um, um, you know, they, they, have, they have laws that's, that dictate how fast you're supposed to drive. Some of you, no, nobody ever told you that. Um, and uh, right here on 44, there are those signs, you know, and they're kind of square and they might have like a 60 on the sign. Carson, that's what that means. That you can't go faster than that. Um, so... Um, so suppose you're going 77 between here and, uh, and uh, Inverness, so excited about getting to um, you know, happy hour at Olive Garden. And, um, and the red lights are in your, uh, and you get pulled over, and now you got problems, right? Because you broke the law, right? And uh, they might say it's a $150 fine, right? And, and the only way you can get out from under the law is to pay the debt, right? Pay the penalty for breaking the law. Um, so with the law, you have two choices. One, keep the law, or two, pay the penalty. Well, guess what Jesus does? The righteous one. He pays the penalty. He dies for our breaking the law. He takes on our punishment on himself, but he also keeps the law perfectly so that our disobedience is accounted to him for which he suffers, and his righteousness is accounted to us, which makes us right with God which is what every heart in this place ultimately longs for, to be reconciled to God, right? You wanna know something really fascinating? Um, We are reconciled to God by obedience, just not ours, Jesus' obedience, right? So this gospel message of Stephen Um, how did, how did Luke, Luke wrote the book of Acts. How did Luke know what Stephen said? How did Luke know what Stephen said? He wasn't in the Sanhedrin. He wasn't admitted into that meeting. How did he know? Who told Luke? Paul. Paul. Do you realize that what Stephen said to them is the heart of Paul's gospel that courses through the rest of the New Testament that Paul instructed all the churches in, that Martin Luther recaptured 500 years ago, that we preach in this church today? It's right from here. Stephen's words changed the world. This is the gospel that changed Paul's life. This is the gospel that changed Martin Luther's life. This is what's Martin Luther. Uh, Romans chapter one, right? There is a righteousness that comes from God. We don't produce a righteousness and give it to God in hopes that God will accept us as his child. No, God gives us a righteousness. He produces it. He gives it to us that makes us right with God. It changed Martin Luther's life. It changed my life. Last, uh, a couple days ago on Friday morning, we had a memorial service for uh, Bill Nicholas. His family is here. Lovely um, family. 
And uh, they told the story of their um, dad. They told, uh, Trish told the story of her husband that they walked in here uh, uh, not that many years ago on an Easter morning. And uh, when Bill walked out, he had tears um, rolling down his eyes. He wasn't a Christian. And he walked out of here with tears rolling down his eyes and he said, of course I've known about Jesus my whole life, but I've never known him. And we happened to announce that a pastor's class was starting um, that very Wednesday. And he turned to his wife and said, I'm going to that class. Six weeks later, he professed faith in Jesus as he joined the church, right? And his life was never the same. And your life will never be the same because you know that missing thing in your life? You know what that Buddhist woman was looking for? It's to be reconciled to God because it's the one thing we need. Listen, even when I was a little child, I knew this much. I didn't want God against me. I did not want to try to live in this world with the creator of the world against me. So how do you get in good with God? How do you know that he's for you? It's this, it's this gospel. It's Jesus the righteous one, you got it? It's what Stephen said that caused the church to go viral. That's why the church is in every tribe, tongue, and nation because religion doesn't work. We can't keep the rules. We can't do it. Only Jesus did. We need Jesus, you got it? You got him, don't be stiff-necked. Don't be stiff-necked. Get Jesus or you got nothing. You got nothing. All right, so secondly, not only was it what Stephen said that caused the church to go everywhere, but it's also what he experienced, he suffered. The church actually goes viral uh, because of his suffering. Suffering spread the church. The very thing you would think would kill the church actually has strengthened and spread the church. The Sanhedrin were infuriated at Stephen's words. They ground their teeth the Bible says they snarled like wild animals. They actually, it says they stopped their ears. I see some of you do that when I preach. You, um, they, they yelled, they rushed him, they dragged him outside and they stoned him to death. It's just hard to imagine how gruesome it would be to, how gruesome would it be to watch someone being pelted with stones, crushed with stones? This is our family story. This is... This is our brother. And in the face of this vicious mob, how did Stephen respond? With courage, with composure, with Christ-likeness. What what does it say about when they observed him and they looked at him? It says the council, when they were gazing at him, his face was like the face of an angel. This This is our guy. This is your great-grandfather in the faith, Stephen. And when they were killing him, what did he say? Father, don't hold this against them. Where did he get that from? When they were killing him and he was about to die, he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Where did he get that from? He's just walking in the footsteps of, of Jesus, isn't he? He's saying what Jesus said. He's proud to die like Jesus died. He's proud to die for Jesus. Suffering. Suffering is a part of uh, our, um, suffering is what it means to be a Christian. 
That's what I want to say is that Christians must regard suffering as normative, right? Tim Keller writes, we want the storyline of our lives to go from strength to strength, success to success, and then happily ever after. But throughout the Bible, we see something completely different, a persistent narrative pattern of life through death, triumph through weakness, right? What did Jesus say? In this world, you will have what? Tribulation. He said, if any man would be my disciple, he must go to a spa in St. Petersburg, right? If any man would be my disciple, he must take up his cross, an implement of torture, right? And follow after me, denying himself even unto death, right? What did Jesus say? If they treat the master like this, he said to his disciples, how do you think they're going to treat you? If they're going to publicly nail me to a tree, what do you think's coming for the rest of you? Remember just a couple years ago when ISIS on the beach in Libya cut off the heads of about 17 Christians right there? It was videoed, it went viral, right? Suffering is normative. I know a friend of mine has 15 grandchildren, so he's thinking, how do I minister to my grandchildren? One of the ways he said to his grandchildren, I want you all to learn three words. If you learn the three words by my birthday, which is about four months away, he said, I'll give you 20 bucks. I'm going to call you each individually, and you have to say the three words. You can't get coached by anyone else. Your parents can't help you. If you miss even one of the words, you don't get the 20 bucks. That motivates kids. And, uh, and you know what the first word was? He said, I'm going to teach you three words, and I'm going to explain why those words are so important. And the first word was suffering. The second word was failure. Three words. One of the parents said their little two-year-old, they could hear him in the monitor in her, in her crib, in her bed, saying those words to herself every night. Because I'm gonna teach you that suffering is the calling of the Christian. But we live in a world, like Keller said, that people think, well, no, no, here's the deal. I know I'm weak, I know there's cancer and suffering and all kinds of horrible things happen to people, but I'm gonna, I've got God, he loves me, he's for me, he's promised me that these things won't happen to me. And um, he'll protect me from these things and he'll heal me. And uh, so I latch my wagon to God and, uh, and then lo and behold, I get cancer or uh, something horrible happens in my life or my spouse leaves, leaves me and then guess what they say? I don't. I don't believe in God anymore. Well, you never believed in God. You believed in a fictitious God of your own imagination. You believed in the North American idea of God, right? You didn't believe in the God of the Bible who virtually assures you of what? Difficulty, pain, hardship, brokenness, right? My, my, uh, one of my friends was a pastor was in Kazakhstan. Um, and uh, the, the pastor of the local church took them out to the village square, surrounded marketplace, surrounded with all the people, and they started to sing a Christian hymn and, uh, and he looked around and he said, everywhere's Muslims, all over there, Muslims, over there, Muslims, all the way around. And we're professing Jesus in front of this Muslim crowd. And he turned to the pastor and said, is this safe? And the pastor hit him in the chest and said, we are Christians. We are not afraid. You have to know your family history right? Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not, what? We will not fear, 
For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Do you know how many parents seem set to raise their children on fear? Fear of global warming, fear of Democrats, fear of whatever. Um, That's not our family history. Um, And secondly, I wanna say about suffering is it's productive. Um, Simone Weil said the extreme greatness of Christianity lies in the fact that it does not seek a supernatural remedy for suffering, but a supernatural use for it. What does suffering cause? Suffering um, actually transforms Paul because Paul never saw anyone suffer like, uh, like what he saw when Stephen died and it scattered the church to the world. Stephen's murder causes Christianity to go viral. That's what it says. That's what the, the, the last verse, that's what 8.1 says, the last verse I read, remember? There arose in the day of Stephen's death a great persecution against the what? They were only persecuting, first it was Jesus, then it was the apostles, now it's a deacon, then it's what? Everybody is being persecuted, and so they all run for their lives, and everywhere they run, they bring the what? They bring the gospel. They bring the gospel, and the church spreads. It goes viral, it goes crazy, because in every little village and every place, they told the story of Jesus, and they never heard such a thing, and people were converted. I want you to know that God is always at work. On the worst day of your life, God is at work. God is at work in every divorce, every diagnosis of cancer, every death, every failure. Satan's greatest judgment will not be the lake of fire. His greatest judgment will knowing that everything he did to harm Christ's church only helped her. My first mentor in ministry taught me, he said, the devil uh, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You better be wary of him. But let me tell you this, he's just God's boy. Everything he does ultimately advances God's plan and purpose. We're not afraid of him. He's a fool. So, January 8th, 1956, five of my heroes died. I wasn't even born. I wasn't born two years later. But they were speared to death in a jungle in the Amazon. And, um, and you know what? Their bodies floating in that river showed up in Life magazine, which is like the internet of its day. And all over the world, the story of those brave missionaries who died caused thousands upon thousands upon thousands of men and women to become missionaries, to take the gospel to the whole world. One of them, Jim Elliott, said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. And a little boy growing up in Miami heard that story. And I watched every movie and I read every book through the gates of splendor and the, then the, the, the biography of Jim Elliott that his wife Elizabeth wrote. I read every bit of it. What, what a tragic death. Five men in the prime of their life. They were speared to death. What tragedy. They left wives. They left young children. One of those young children is a member of our church that they left. The killing of Stephen is horror. But his kingdom prevails. That's our family story. That's how the church goes viral. And let me finish with this then. How else does the church go viral? It's something Stephen sees. He sees his defender. 
It's not just what Stephen said and not just what he experienced, it's what he saw. So as Stephen is being killed, what does the Bible tell us? He saw that heaven opened and he saw the Son of Man, Jesus, and he saw Jesus doing what? Standing at the right hand of God, right? Now, that's not what we profess when we say the Apostles' Creed, right? You know, he died and was buried and descended into hell and he rose again from the dead and he ascended into heaven where he what? Where he sits at the right hand of God. He's seated at the right hand of God. Meaning that Jesus' work is finished. He's seated. You sit down when your work is done. It is finished. And he's throned as king of all creation. Jesus is seated in heaven, but that's not what Stephen saw. So who stands in the court? If you're accused of a crime and you're sitting there in the dock as the accused, somebody stands up. Who stands up? Your defender, right? Your defense counsel. They stand up to be your advocate. That's why Jesus is standing. Why would... um, Jesus is risen in Stephen's defense at the very minute that Stephen is being condemned in an earthly court. He is being commended in the only courtroom that matters. That's what the Bible says. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He is our advocate before the Father. I want you to get this. At the moment of his horrific death, Stephen vividly saw what he knew. He knew this intellectually but God allowed him to see it, experience it. He saw that in Christ, we are God's beloved, free from condemnation and beautiful in the sight of God. And this verdict of God, the love of God was so real to him that man's verdict against him was inconsequential. You know why I love this job? You know why I love being a preacher of the gospel? Is I get to experience people seeing that. And I want you to see it. And I want you to experience it. Into the core of your being. That Jesus is your defender. Um, Why did the church go viral? Because of our hearts of hearts, the one thing we want is to have God be for us, right? Have God be our advocate. To God be our defender. God be with us. That little girl, Nightbird, I mentioned, that sang on that show, eaten up with cancer, she's dying. She's really in her last days. She soldiers on and she recently wrote this. She said, I spent a lot of time squeezing my eyes shut and trying to remember what I believe, counting my breaths in the grief cloud, burying my face into God's t-shirt. I remind him sometimes and not kindly that I believed him when he told me the story he wrote for me is good and that he never stops thinking of me. I must be a fool in love, because even from under all this debris, I still believe him. And when I'm too angry to ask him to sit on my bed until I fall asleep, he stays. He still stays. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He never stops interceding for you. That's what caused the church to go viral. It's the one thing, the one longing in every human heart. This is our family history.
Let's pray. Jesus, my friends, we're gathered. I'm gathered with my friends. And we're, we struggle to believe. Way too often we're the stiff-necked ones. But you've been so kind to cause us to see that we, we don't keep the law and that we need you, the righteous one, to advocate, to be our advocate before the Father. But Lord, for my struggling friends, for a very flawed pastor, open our eyes that we might see the one who ever lives to be our defender. Hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org. Thank you.